Thank you, thank you. Um, just want to say again, it's, I can't say this enough how exciting it is to me as a pastor to get to come and hear preaching and teaching that is from the Word of God and the kingdom truth, salvation of the soul, all that. It's so exciting. And those of you that are pastors in different places in the world, um, it sometimes I know feels like there's just little tiny pockets and wonder if there's anybody else out there. And so this is comforting to me and exciting. Um, So uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for another opportunity to go to your word. Uh, We know that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and will guide us. We pray that what we hear, that you would give us understanding. Uh, We mostly pray for wisdom to be able to take that knowledge and understanding and apply it so the wisdom to be able to take that knowledge and understanding and apply it so that we can be pleasing to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue then in First Peter, still in chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, picking up where we left off yesterday, beginning of verse 18. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. We, we see that, uh, you know, specifically the who the letter is written to, and we talked about the fact that not all scripture is written to us, but it's all for us. So um, we know this is for believers, as we're uh, majority of it is telling us how to live the Christian life. And these are further instructions. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. You know, I think a lot of people ask the question, well, um, haven't we moved beyond slavery and, you know, we don't have slavery, so why do we still go over scriptures that have servants and masters? Um, you know, the law in our land is you're not allowed to own a person as property, so those things have changed. But the principle of this person, though the actual word is slave, but, but they, um, yes, they were owned, but the idea is they were working for a person. So I think the same principle applies, and I, I think of it as employers and employees. So there are business owners, or maybe not the actual owner, but maybe a manager or a supervisor, someone that has authority over other people. And then there are those working. So the servants, to me, we could also think of if somebody is an authority over us in the workplace, it is appropriate for us as Christians to be in submission to them. So be subject. So servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to do good, uh, to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, that is like the, maybe the word dishonest, uh, sometimes those that aren't as good and gentle. And that's, of course, difficult. There's a lot of things in Scripture that we're told to do as Christians. They're easy to read, but it's difficult to apply. And so uh, going with the message we just heard, it's it's a yoke, it's a partnership, it's getting ourselves out of the way so that he can do his work through us, and the work is, I think, as we work to deny self, because it's self that gets in the way all the time. So um, it's easy if you have an, uh, somebody that you're working for that's good to you, and it's complimentary, and it's gentle, but for those of you who may be in a different position It's not that easy, but that's what we're supposed to do as believers. Verse 19, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So if if a person is in a situation where they're mistreated, but they continue to be in submission and do what they're asked to do, um, then the scripture says that's good. They're doing it. It's thankworthy. All right, verse 20. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? So the idea, okay, so if you've done something wrong and you're, you're being reprimanded for it or there are some consequences for it, well, and so you take that patiently, that's no big deal because if you've done something wrong, it's when you're doing what's right and you still... Um, are being mistreated. So that's what it's pointing out here, I believe, in verse 20. Going on, but if when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And we saw that word several times yesterday. We see it throughout the scripture. It could be translated a hyphenated word, well-pleasing. It's well-pleasing to God. So these are appropriate things as believers uh, for us 
to do and how to behave as Christians. Verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us. So we've heard already the messages talking about uh, suffering. If we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. So in order to rule and reign in the coming kingdom, we repeatedly uh, see this uh, call uh, to suffering and the understanding of that. And so here we see Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. So again, we could look throughout Christ's life and look at how he responded when things happened to him, when he was mistreated. That's a perfect example. He did, never did anything wrong, but he was treated wrongfully. And yet, um, you know, I think it's only because of self sometimes. If somebody hurts us and we've been wronged, we immediately, the tendency is in our human nature or sin nature or the old nature, we want to retaliate. We want revenge. That's normal. The scripture says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. A couple things I always think about that. First of all, it's God's. Vengeance is mine, he says. And he says, I will repay. So it's going to be taken care of. We just need to leave it alone and let God do that because he's in charge of that. Um, and we're not to get involved. I remember um, I used to manage a music, um, Christian music store a couple years back in the mid-80s, I think it was. But anyway, but the owner said to me, the day I become perfect, look out. She was joking, of course, because she knew <laughs> couldn't reach perfection in the sense of being without sin and never making a mistake. But she was saying, you know, that's the thing. When we as Christians think that we have come to the place that we can judge other people, uh, and think somehow we're God now, we can take his place, and we can enact vengeance on other people. Uh, we've stepped into the wrong role. That's not our role. We're not perfect. It's not our place. So going back to the scripture, though, we see he is our example, and he suffered, and we know he uh, never did anything wrong, and yet he continued to suffer instead. Verse 22, who did no sin, reminding us Jesus did not, neither was guile found in his mouth. So... Nothing. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, we, we don't use that much in the modern English anymore, but uh, you could use the word insulted if you want. He reviled not the word again, meaning back. So it's again, in our, it's normal in our nature to, if somebody insults us, we want to say something back. The idea of always wanting to get the last word, but it's not Christian-like. It's not following the example of Christ. He didn't do that. Going on to verse 13, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. So here's the son. He was committed to be obedient to his father. And as we know, according to Hebrews, even to the death on the cross. Verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. So here he is without sin, taking all of our sin upon him. He did that for us. That we, being dead to sin, should live to righteousness. Now, you know, that's again, we talk about a paradox. This seems like a paradox. We're talking about, like yesterday, we looked at a living sacrifice. A sacrifice was an animal that you killed, so how are you talking about something that's dead? But it's the same principle. Now, let me back up a moment, because I think there's always with God, when we're looking at things, so to speak, two sides of the coin, there's God's side looking down, and then there's our side looking up. So God counts us as already dead, dead in Christ. Um, but the reality is, in our Christian life, um, self keeps getting resurrected. We keep resurrecting self because we say no to God and say yes to self, and so self gets resurrected. But that's why we're told repeatedly, mortify the deeds of the flesh. We've got to constantly be and actively, or the word proactive, if you will, making sure we're, in a sense, mortifying or killing the deeds of the flesh. So dead to self. Now, in the eyes of God, we we're buried in Christ, raised in newness of life. So that's how he's, in his, from his perspective. So being dead to sins should live. So if we are dead to sins, if we've been buried in Christ, then we should be living here, as it says, live to righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Again, talking about Christ, and through his stripes and all that suffering that he endured, then we're healed. Verse 25, for ye were like sheep, sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd 
and bishop of your souls. Now it continues in the instruction, chapter 3, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husband. So it gave the example of the servants. Now it's talking about the wives. Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be, in other words, if there's an instance where a husband is not being obedient to the word, they may be won by the, in the old English word conversation, is better translated behavior of the wives. So here it's talking, there's a reason why in the scripture God has put things in order, and this is the thing about the responsibility of the husband to be the head and the wives be in submission to that. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste, again, behavior, coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair. So, you know, there's nothing wrong. I think people uh, take, in this case, Peter, and many have taken Paul out of context and thinking that they're saying, uh, you probably been to churches where they have a list of do's and don'ts, we call it legalism, and they're saying, you know, uh, you can't wear jewelry, you can't fix your hair, you can't wear, wear makeup, all that. I think they're missing the point here, because the point is, what's more important is what's on the inside, not the outside. It doesn't mean that a person can't do anything about the outside, but that's not the important thing. So who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. So it's the inside that's more important to God. And in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. So that's more valuable to God. That's what's is more valuable to him. Verse 5, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, so we look back at examples of those in the Old Testament, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Now it gives an example. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You know, and, and I forget who it was yesterday uh, was talking about this actual uh, scripture in the example of Sarah. Um, you know, it's interesting in the Bible, we look at examples. I'll give you one example. You know, we talk about in Hebrews where it talks about Abraham was faithful. But for 13 years, God didn't speak to Abraham, remember, because when he decided, he listened to the the advice of Sarah when she said, well, um, since I'm barren, maybe God's promise will be fulfilled if you go into the, the handmaid, Hagar, and we know Ishmael was the result of that. and You know, it was all in the plan of God to happen that way. But, but when Hebrews is bringing out by faith, it's giving examples of faith, it's giving out that example of Abraham overall was faithful, not that example of when he didn't trust God and decided to do it on his own. And so here is an example of Sarah. So it wasn't that, you know, she laughed at God, but that's not what's being brought out here. It's talking about her faithfulness to Abraham. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Now, the word knowledge, of course, in this understanding, and some women might take offense to this, but I think it's, I have a different take on what this means. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And I say some women may take offense thinking, wait a minute, does that mean I'm not as strong? I can personally know there are lots of women that are stronger than I am. So I, I wasn't born with a, lots of physical strength. My brother, on the other hand, was very muscular, played varsity football, you know, different genetics and makeup than I am. But I think the idea, the way I look at it is God has placed this order. The husband has the bigger responsibility because he's the head. The husband needs to understand, I believe, the position of the woman. She is in submission to him. It's not weaker, is it, that she can't do something because she's weaker in that sense. I think the idea is she is in the place of being in submission to her husband. And the husbands are, we're, are instructed to understand that, have that understanding of her position. And it says then, as being heirs together of the grace of life. So it doesn't matter whether it's the husband or the wife. It doesn't matter whether it's the servant or the master. The point is, in this case too, heirs together. We talked about how yesterday we were looking at scripture here in Peter where he said, God is not a respecter of persons. He's not looking at one person over another and say, well, you know, 
when we get to the judgment seat, he said, well, you had more money, so uh, I place more favoritism on you. Or you had a greater position in the world. None of that has anything to do. It won't matter, Jew or Gentile, uh, at the judgment seat when we're being judged as Christians, Jew or Gentile, male or female, none of that is going to matter. So he's emphasizing the husband and the wife are both heirs together of the same Uh, as it says here, heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So in other words, any of us as believers, anything that can be if we're out of the will of God, our prayers can then be hindered. So verse 8, finally, be all of one mind. So all of us as believers, being like-minded, one mind, having compassion one of another. So that's what we're instructed to do as believers. Compassion, this love one for another. Love like brethren. So here, you know, you talk about family, and families are supposed to be closer. Well, we have the family of God. Love, the word as, excuse me, like brethren. Being pitiful. Now, here's an example of where Old English has changed a little. Usually when we say something's pitiful, we're saying that it's pretty sorry. It's not very good. Uh, if you turn the word around, it's more to its true meaning, full of pity. Full of pity instead of, in the sense... Uh, by the way, not to go off track, but there's a lot of words like that. Uh, we use the word awful as something meaning bad, but the Bible describes uh, the word awful in the sense of full of awe, to stand in awe of God. So you could describe God as awful. In modern English, that wouldn't sound appropriate. The same word terrible, say the, the, the Lord is terrible, but in the sense of to be feared is a different meaning altogether. So words have changed meaning in the English, but the Bible has the same meaning. Uh, also saying, be courteous, verse 9, not rendering evil for evil, uh, which just means if somebody does something that's bad that hurts you, the idea of rendering that something bad back to them. Um, it's saying don't do that. As Christians, we're instructed not to render evil for evil or railing for railing. Again, it could be just something they say, an insult, and you, it's a natural response. Well, we'll just do it back. But we're instructed not to do that as Christians. But contrarywise, blessing. So this isn't the only place we find this in Scripture, but it's repeated throughout. But again, it's again something not easy to do. If somebody insults us and we instead bless them, um, I know something in my life uh, that I have done, and I, you know, as Paul used that express, uh, expression about heaping coals on them, um, I always thought of this because. Driver, people behind the wheel in a car, you probably notice, tend to be less patient. And they probably wouldn't confront other people like they do when they're behind the wheel of a car and they get furious if somebody, you know, maybe cuts in front of them and they're just, I don't know that they're going to get anywhere faster if they hadn't done that, but it's just that thing and they blow the horn and they start doing gestures and everything. Um, And I have, I'm not perfect, so I have made mistakes in my life and I've had people... I could. T- I don't know what they're saying, but I can imagine as they're screaming in their car, you know, whatever. So I just smile and wave. <laughs> I think it bothers them more, you know, than if I would respond in, in like manner. So, you know, I just look at it. We all make mistakes, and if we were a little more patient driving, there wouldn't be so many people killed on the on the roadways because of road rage uh, when they get upset and they have to have a gun sitting beside them so they use it. Anyway, so blessing instead of cursing, now uh, instead of railing back or insulting, knowing, in verse 9, that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. So in other words, we're supposed to give a blessing. We're, the inheritance, we're supposed to get the inheritance. That's supposed to be um, what is ours if we don't forfeit it. So we're to keep that in mind. Verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Again, we see this word evil, and I think people think a lot of things. But if you look at the context in the Bible, the word evil is used different ways. A lot of the times, the better word is calamity, is not in this case, but like it's, a, it's a, maybe evil will come upon you. It's talking about calamity in that sense. Um, Often when people see the word evil, they think of the worst things, like heinous crimes. Yes, you can put heinous crimes, I think, in the group of things that are evil. But, you know, just, just for instance, self-righteousness. 
to God is described as filthy rags. And if you look that up in the Hebrew, exactly what that means, it's really disgusting and repulsive. So I won't mention it now because it's getting close to lunch. But it's... (laughs) But the idea of how repulsive it is, that's how repulsive self-righteousness is. When Jesus kept talking about the Pharisees, it was repulsive to him, the things that they were doing. It was all in self-righteousness. And he said, unless ours, our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, we shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about ruling and reigning with him if we don't you know, get above this self-righteousness that the Pharisees had. So... Uh, back to this context. So this is saying oftentimes if it says evil speakings, evil communications, the idea is not necessarily particular words, but if somebody says something to tear another person down, that's not what we're to do as Christians, to tear other people down. Um, but I have seen, and we've all seen this, I think, in churches where there's more carnality than spirituality. And so more Christians are living their lives for themselves. They may be in church, and it's a social gathering. But they spend more time coming together to talk about somebody else with the purpose of tearing them down. And that's what they all come together for. Did you hear what so-and-so did? (laughs) All right. So, uh, refrain his tongue from evil in his lips that speak no guile. Let him, in this old English word, we would use the word shun, shun evil. It, it, that that those things that are wrong and are not right, we need to get it away from us as Christians and do good. So that's the opposite. Um, always I find in the Bible, if you notice, for instance, um, when it talks about laying aside or taking this off and taking that off and then putting on the whole armor of God, um, a lot of Christians and a lot of preachers I hear preaching about stop doing this and stop doing that and don't do this and don't do that. But they never talk about what we need to do. Um, so if a Christian stops all these things and they don't put on the armor of God, meaning they don't get in the Word and they don't get grounded, then probably all those things they quit are just going to come back and they'll be worse than they were at the beginning. So it's important that we do both. So not just shunning evil, but then in place of it, doing good. Uh, the definition of good you just take one O out and you got the word God. So that's God. Anything God does is good. Anything we do ourselves, it doesn't matter whether the world thinks it's good. It won't be counted for good. It'd be, count, it'd be good for nothing. All right, so do good. Let him seek peace. Peace isn't just something that happens. But as Christians, we're instructed to seek peace. And then this older word, and ensue it, we might use the word pursue it. It has to be worked for. Peace that's why in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. It has to be worked at to come about, um, whether it's in a marriage, in a family situation, whether it's two people in a, in a business transaction, whatever it is, maybe in something in church. It, peace just doesn't happen. You have to work at it. It has to be worked at. Ensue peace. Pursue it. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and the ears are open to their prayers. So if we're in right with God. If we, you know, he's convicted of some, uh, us of something in our lives, we confessed it, then we're in his will, then he hears our prayers. His ears are open. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, people think, oh, well, those are lost people. No, we're not talking about this isn't the subject of lost people. This is the subject of believers. So either as believers, we're doing good or we're doing that which is not good, which is the word evil. Again, not having to mean some people say, well, I'm not an evil Christian because I'm not murdering people. That definitely would be evil, but evil could be as simple as, simple as uh, an attitude of the mind that God is not pleased with. Verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if you're followers of that which is good? So typically speaking, for the most part, there are maybe exceptions, um, if we do right things and we do what we're supposed to as Christians, there aren't laws against that usually. You're not put in jail because you're kind to someone else. You know, when somebody's mad at me and when they're driving and I wave to them and smile, I'm not arrested for that. So we can do good things. Verse 14, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, so sometimes it does happen. People have done, it happened to Jesus, of course. I think it doesn't happen to us as much more in life. For instance, you know, we're allowed to worship freely. We don't get arrested because we're coming to church to worship. But, you know, I think in a sense in the early church where there were people being arrested in the first century, um, you know, they were called the people of the way and 
before Paul was Paul and his mission was to go out and have them arrested. Um, it had to be difficult, you know, just to be a believer and to do what God wanted you to do. Um, so he said, if you do suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. We have to be in the right mind to understand that as Christians, because if, if a person is suffering for righteousness sake, there's certainly nothing happy about it from a practical standpoint, but it's understanding why we would be happy. Going on in verse um, 14, and be not afraid of their terror. As pointed out, what's the worst they can do? They could take our physical life. That's the worst they could do. I mean, somebody might say that might be awful. For a carnal Christian, that would be awful because that's, that's what they have as their life. I don't think about anything else. Neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason of the hope that is in you. And then it said to do so in meekness and fear. So let's talk about that verse. Always be ready. First of all, uh, I would say, as you well know, a lot of people have no idea what the hope is. Um, I've heard people read scriptures and they think uh, the hope is the second coming um, because they misunderstand the scripture in Titus. Um, but it says, you know, the, the, the idea of the hope, which may or may not, that's the word, the meaning, is it might happen. Our hope is that we at the judgment seat hear him say, well done, Thou good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler of many things, enter thou into the joy of your Lord. That's the hope. We hope that we'll get the inheritance that is ours. It belongs to us if we don't get disinherited. The last examples of the Bible, and as we look through Hebrews this morning, that we're warned not to follow the same example of unbelief as the Israelites did. Very strong warnings for us as believers that we don't follow that same Example. So here, first of all, to understand what that hope is. So I know we understand here at this conference, we know what that hope means. But to be ready to give an answer, first of all, to give an answer, somebody has to ask the question. The only reason I bring this up is, I don't know about you, but I get excited sometimes, and I want to give the answer before the question's asked. But I know if God has not prepared their heart, we can talk till we can't talk anymore, and it won't make any difference. Um, so God has to prepare them to hear what you're going to say. And as we know in Hebrews, and this will we do if God permit, I'm talking about going on to the deeper things of the word. So if they're not ready to hear what the hope is, if they haven't asked us, another tendency is I have, if somebody asks me a question, I, sh I try now, I've learned through experience, to try to answer what they asked me and then stop. And then maybe that'll, they'll have another question or maybe it'll be a while, and then they'll think about what you said, and then maybe ask another question. But I want to just, as you know, it'd be like, wouldn't it be nice if we could open somebody's head up and just put it in there and close it down, and, and all of a sudden a light bulb would come on, and they would understand what we understand, and that would be nice. But obviously that doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen through osmosis, the process of, you know, if somebody um, had some perfume and they sprayed it, and it spread across eventually through the whole, um, the whole room. Um, the Word of God doesn't happen that way. So we're here, hearing it preached, we're hearing it taught, but it doesn't just float into our brains and suddenly we get it. So, um, so thinking about all that, first we have to know what the hope is. I think wait for the question, and that's hard, I think, sometimes to be patient, and then only ask what they ask for. So if they're asking, we need to be ready to tell them and explain to them what, what the hope is. So I think that's really important. So let's, uh, again, this scripture, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always. We just always should be ready for that. We, know, we don't know at some point we might need to be able to give that response to somebody if they ask what that hope is. All right? And then to do it, it says, with meekness and fear. The word meekness... Um, I guess the best example is, you know, Jesus was considered meek. A lot of people happens English and think the word means weak. It's the totally opposite of weak. Talk about, I think, to be meek, you first have to be totally yielded to God. Think about Jesus, who on the cross was being ridiculed, reviled. They were saying all kinds of things. If you're the Son of God, why don't you just come down off the cross? We know Jesus um, 
could have done anything he wanted. You know, there's the song, I could have, he could have taught 10,000 angels. All he had to do is speak a word. Everything by him consists. All he had to do was let go, and everything would just not consist anymore. It would all come apart. Um, he could have stopped it all if he wanted to. He could have done all that, and yet he was obedient to the Father and went through all that. It's just amazing to, to think his obedience for us. And he did it for us. Um, so anyway, that's obedience. So we talk about meekness. But the idea is gentle. Um, I think when we learn these truths, there's a tendency to maybe become, you know, because God has blessed us and we see it and they don't. And so we think, okay, I know this and you don't know what you're talking about, so I'm going to straighten you out, that kind of attitude. And that might be the tendency of what we want to do. But that's not in meekness. And usually trying to hit somebody over the head with a hammer is not, is not going to work. Um, so first, God will prepare their heart. We need to be ready to answer. And we need to do it with gentleness and fear. Verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good behavior in Christ. So in other words... If we are doing what's right, then, you know, that's different. If we've done something wrong, then they have something to say about it. But if we are in good conscience that we're living the Christian life as we should. Verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So it's better if, you know, it's not, doesn't mean it's pleasant. It's difficult. You think about Paul who's put in prison. What did he do wrong? Um, you know, Jesus didn't do anything wrong and he suffered all that. Uh, so we think about all those examples of people who suffered for well-doing. Verse 18, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, that the, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Let's pause a moment. So here we see he's the just. He never sinned. And he did it for us, the unjust. He suffered once, of course, for sins. So as you know, there's churches that believe... Um, you can get saved and then not be saved and get saved. You think about it, because we understand from the perspective of salvation of the soul, why whole denominations have been confused about this. Because they see the scriptures that say salvation is by grace through faith. So we've got churches that say, okay, that's what we're going to follow. And so when somebody brings up other scriptures about works, we're just going to say, well, if you're really a Christian, you'll do them or something. You know how they say, <laughs> those are just people that say they're Christians, but they're really not. What do they call that? Professors and not possessors or something. And they come up with something, well, if they really were Christians, they'd be in church and they'd be studying their Bible. And so that's their explanation, most of them, as to why uh, the works are just meaning you're going to do because you believe. And then there's churches that say, no, wait a minute, you can't just... I remember a preacher getting up once I heard him preach about it. He said, I don't like this easy believism. You just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. So he said, I, there's works involved in salvation. Of course, that contradicts the word of God because it's by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But they got hung up on those scriptures. What they didn't understand is rightly dividing the word. There's salvation of the spirit, the salvation of the soul, the salvation of the body. So if they understood salvation of the soul is that process of, um, of our soul being saved in the Christian lives, hoping to hear well done at the, at the judgment seat, that's a different part of salvation. And so then all those scriptures become clear once a person under, understands that. So... Then we can understand different ways that people say it, once saved, always saved. Okay, I'm saved. But think about the churches who understand once saved, always saved, but they don't understand salvation of the soul. So pastors have to come up with other ways to get the congregation motivated to come to church. Sometimes they do it by having a, they spend a million dollars to have some big place where they can have a big supper, a uh, place to eat. And so, you know, because they figured if they serve food, more people show up. I'll give you an example, though. I was talking to somebody. They were on their way. It was a Wednesday evening, and they said, we're on their way to church. And I said, that's great, because hardly anybody goes to church anymore, even on a, especially Wednesday night. She said, oh, we just go for the supper, and then we leave. <laughs> but think about that. It is something. It's physical food. It draws our attention. I have seen people, these are Christian people, who will change their work so they can't come to church because they're working. So, okay, that's understandable. They, work. they don't have control over their work schedule. But if there's a dinner, they will change their work schedule to get to the church to have the dinner. They're more interested in that physical food than the spiritual. And that's, of course, sad, and I could go on and on about that. Okay, 
so now I've lost track of where I was. <laughs> That's what preachers do, as you know. Um, anyway, um, and it might come back to me, it might not, but the idea is we, um, here as we look at this scripture, the, those that say, okay, I'm saved and it's all taken care of, and then um, they look at the other side and say, um, you know, so that's it's just easy believism, easy believism. But if they understand salvation of the spirit and salvation of the soul, then all of a sudden, all of that would make sense. So we understand. Oh, I was talking about why pastors need to get, you know. So they try to come up with ways to get people to give money. The church can't function without money. So they've got to figure out. Okay, so if we're saved, and it doesn't matter what you do, then how are you going to get people to tithe? Because why would they tithe if they're going to be in heaven anyway? Why would you just keep on to that 10% and you could use it for yourself? So, the, so I have found preachers use um, things about, think about all Jesus has done for you. The least you could do is give 10%. You know, but whatever it is to pull on the heartstrings of people. When I was in seminary, a lot of the things they were talking about is using the sermons, emotional stories to get people sobbing and crying, and then, then you can get them to do something. You can get them to commit to pledging amount of money to church or whatever, the building fund or whatever they're doing. So, but all these other motivations, but we don't have to have those if we understand salvation of the soul. Somebody was telling me once about a Seventh-day Adventist. They said they felt comfortable in hiring them to come work in their home because they trusted him because they believe they have to be good <laughs> to get to heaven again, <laughs> which, you know, they're human too, so just I wouldn't trust that. But uh, I just think the idea is we understand salvation of the soul, so we understand that, yes, we're saved, and nothing can change that, but it will make a difference at the judgment seat what we've done in our Christian lives. It will make a difference. So here I said all that because once he suffered once. So he doesn't have to go back on the cross and suffer again. Those people believe you can get lost and then saved again. Um, I had a preacher once when I was growing up said, if a person really truly believed this, that you could lose your salvation, then as soon as we get saved, we should have somebody shoot us, and it would be over, and we could guarantee our will to go to heaven. And I know that seems like a logical thing to do, but what's really sad, I think there was that woman in Texas that actually drowned her children in the bathtub because she didn't want them to lose their salvation. She really believed that, and it drove her to do something drastic like that. So we can't lose our salvation, but we can lose the salvation of our soul and if people understood that, it would make a big difference. Okay, once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So physical body, flesh and blood, quickened, made alive by the Spirit. And it's almost like getting into a whole different subject here in a second. And I think we have time. Good. Okay. So by which, that is in the body quickened by the Spirit, is resurrected body, also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. All people read that and say, what in the world? What does that have? Spirits in prison? What is that? Okay, so in his resurrected body, it says the word preach. People get upset. The word preach just means announce, so you don't have to be a pastor to preach. You can stand up. You know, in a lot of churches, they print a bulletin, and then somebody stands up and reads everything in the bulletin in case you don't know how to read. So anyway, I know that sounded like I'm being sarcastic. But um, but that's just making announcements, and anybody can make an announcement. Um, if the pastor's not teaching, in my opinion, they're not being a pastor because that's our responsibility is to feed the sheep. So in any case, the word preach means to make announcement. What was it he announced to them? This was a victory announcement. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.1, so just... We'll just do this quickly in our minds to refresh our memory. All right. It was told, everything from the, about the serpent, you know, was there. It was Adam and Eve and the serpent. They were all three there, and God was speaking to them. So it was told what was going to happen. From that point, Satan made it a point to thwart the plan of God. He's been trying to thwart it. From the seed ever coming. If Jesus was never born, then none of all this could ever be fulfilled. So he tried... He, he, tried, he got one-third of the angels to leave heaven, come down here, and pollute the DNA, hoping that that would thwart the plan of God and the seed couldn't be born. So by the time of the flood, there were only eight that weren't polluted yet. Their DNA wasn't polluted by the angel blood, and God saved them through the flood. Okay, so, that, so these angels, and by the way, I'm mentioning all that because that's what I believe this is a reference to. These spirits are in a place, if you translate the Greek word, um, it's Tatara. So in prison, 
He made a victory. All of that that they attempted to do was they weren't victorious. God was victorious. He came, he gave his life, he resurrected. Verse 20, who sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, and then talking about that as a type, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not in the sense, I forget who it was, what was this morning, talked about not to be confused, or maybe it was last night, with the Church of Christ, thinking that water baptism is necessary to get to heaven uh, because they don't, again, they're not separating salvation of spirit, salvation of the soul, and what water baptism is about. So this is a type, it says, um, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, and as you know, we could spend a whole other message on, on this part, but I'm going to continue. Verse 22, who is gone, speaking of Jesus Christ, has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. So all of this, it, we're still getting instruction as believers as what to do in the Christian life. And then this is um, thrown in here at the end of the chapter. So we'll continue uh, for time to chapter 4. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. That's hard to do, but it's, it's talking about the mind of Christ. How are we going to get the mind of Christ? In the Word. You know, the Word in the beginning was the Word. It's all synonymous when you think about it. You look at Christ, look at the Word, the Holy Spirit, okay? So, the same mind that he had, so he suffered. We need to arm ourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. So we look at the idea, this goes back to the idea that we're dead to sin now. So if we're dead to sin, we should no longer, as Christians be living like we still have a living sin nature. Again, we keep resurrecting self, and that's a problem, but that's part of the warfare in the Christian life. And I said this yesterday, but it's true. Carnal Christians, there isn't a warfare going on. They're not, there's no warfare. They're, it's just, they're just doing whatever. It's, it's if we're spiritual, if we're a spiritual Christian, the warfare is going on because we're battling between saying yes to self or yes to God. It's a constant battle. It's something we have to work with every day. It's, it's not just something in a lot of churches where they don't understand salvation of the soul. They say, somebody come down the aisle, uh, get your life right with God, and then everything is great from then on. And the problem is they never get fed. They quickly start noticing that people in church are mean people. And they, they, they say, why would I want to go to a place like that? And they quit going, and then they don't go anywhere. And if you talk, try to talk to these people about church doesn't have to be that way, and you try to get them answered in the Word, they've already been turned off. Why, why would they want to go to a place of hateful people? Which is sad, but if a majority of us are carnal, it's understandable, understandable why there's hatred and division. All right, so going on in verse 1, uh, verse 2, sorry. No longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. That's what we should be doing as Christians, since we're dead to self. Verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have, the old English word wrought, would be worked, the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Now, this may not have been all of parts of our lives, but, you know, a lot of these lists you can see a whole lot of things. Anything that's contrary to the will of God. But in the time past is the context of who Peter was writing specifically to here. These were, in the past, these were part of their lives. There's that word, by the way, lasciviousness again. All right, verse 4. Wherein they think it's strange that you should run not with those to the same excess of riot and then they speak, it says evil, but they're speaking bad about you because of that. How, how many, and that's why I think we don't have the same type of persecution today, but how many times have you been persecuted just in the sense of mild persecution because somebody thinks it's odd that you're going to a Bible conference and it's Sunday night, it's all day Monday, it's all day Tuesday, it's all day Wednesday. Isn't that a little bit much for the Bible? 
Of course, none of us would agree that's too much for the Bible, but I think people would think that we're fanatical if they think you're going to go get that much Bible. I just, what's sad to me is the, that the opportunity that's here, and I know there's other things that people have to do, I understand that, but there's just not more people here getting the word because, you know, I just think, I just think, you know, where are, where are all these Christians who need to be fed? Yes, that's what I'm thinking. All right. Um, Going on before we run out of time in verse 5. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? So again, it's going back to remind us of the judgment seat. We have to give an account. Each of us individually will give an account. Verse 6. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, uh, that is dead now, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Now, again, that's a place where people say, well, wait a minute. Peter is saying here the end of all things is right around the corner. That's the expression at hand. I had a professor in college that told me that Jesus obviously didn't know what he was talking about since uh, when he, he mentioned to, uh, you know, the, when he said there will be some, stand, st- some men standing here will not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Apparently, he didn't read the next verse because the next verse said after six days, you know, that he was transfigured. Peter, James, and John saw that. Um, but anyway, um, they saw Jesus in his transfigured body, which has been postponed 2,000 years now. But he said that Jesus didn't know what he's talking about, that the kingdom wasn't set up, and everybody who he was talking to, they all died. And so he was just very bold to say such things. Obviously, people say anything now, and then it's believed. But... Um, it's terribly sad, but it's true. So here we see the end of all things at hand. So does Peter know what he's talking about? I was hoping we actually had time to get to Second Peter, because that's even I like it even more than First Peter. Uh, because in Second Peter, he says, you know, everybody says, where is the promise of his coming? So since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. How many people, and I'm not talking about lost people, because lost people don't believe in the second coming. Obviously, they don't believe in the first coming. Why would they believe in the second coming? I'm talking about Christians. How many Christians really don't believe in the second coming at all? I'm just talking about him coming back. I mean, I've heard Christians say, well, I believe the second coming is when we trust in Jesus as our Savior. That's the second coming. Or I believe the second coming is when you die because you go to heaven. These totally things off the wall is their belief about the second coming. Then there are people who do believe in the second coming, but they think, oh, you know, that anybody who talks about it being in the near future, they're obviously wrong. Peter specifically said that in the last days, scoffers would arise saying, where is the promise of his coming? We're in the last days. Now, people might say, okay, wait, Peter was already saying it's at hand. But we think about, um, as, as was preached just uh, before me, was we were in Hebrews, that day of rest, that seventh day, the six days that God created, and the seventh day he rested, and then there's 6,000 years of man, and the seventh day is the millennial rest, 1,000 years. So we know that we're near the end of this age, and it's about to be that time. Um, so somebody might say, well, how could he say, because Paul says it too, it seems like it's saying the time is near, the time is short. But if we think about it, a thousand years is one day, Peter also says in Second Peter, if we think about that, then they were actually in the beginning of the fifth day. We're now at the end of the sixth day. We're, it's less, in the, in the eyes of God, we are less than 48 hours from when Peter wrote that. Think about that, it puts a whole different perspective on what we're reading. It's a different perspective on time. You know, time is passing differently for us, so we think, oh, a thousand years, that's a long time. But it's less than 48 hours in the mind of God from the time Peter said the time was at hand. Be therefore sober. If that doesn't sober us and get us focused as Christians on his return, I don't know what would. And watch to prayer. I think about Peter, James, and John when he went in with Jesus in the garden, and it was midnight, so it was late. And he asked them to pray. Well, you know, if we were having the Bible conference at midnight, um, there might be more of us nodding off. It would just be normal. Um, so obviously it's understandable. Jesus goes off to pray, and he asks them to pray, and he comes back, and they're sleeping. He asked them to stay alert and to pray, but they didn't do that. It's midnight. But we can see why, if we understand the urgency of the moment, Jesus knew the urgency of the time, and they didn't perceive it. How many Christians today understand the urgency of the time? 
Watch to prayer. Verse 8, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. You know, the word translated from the Greek word, sort of like love in action, which is a neat way to translate love when you think about actual what charity is, but it's that kind of unconditional love. Um, Fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. That's interesting. So not only is the scripture telling us as Christians to be hospitable, it's telling us to not complain about it when we do it. And this is a tendency, the same thing Paul says, be a, be a cheerful giver. You know, so, so we sometimes, you know, give above the tithe and we give an offering, but we shouldn't do it grudgingly. Um, and this is the same about hospitali- being hospitable is not to do it Grudgingly, Verse 10, as everyone has received the gift, even so minister the same to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What does that mean? God has given each of us different abilities. None of us have the same thing. Some of us have similar things. Some of us have some of the same gifts. But no Christian has the exact same abilities. God has given us different gifts. God has told us to use those gifts, whatever they are. You know, some people think the only gifts are, you know, things that you see. There's like in a church service, if somebody can play the piano or the organ or sing or play the accordion or or something that they see or the preacher preaching or the Sunday school teacher teaching, but there are other gifts. He's just telling us to use those to minister to others. Okay, got about two minutes. Verse 11, if any man speak... Let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God gives. So again, God given us different abilities, do it with that. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praised and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I think it's a good place to stop, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time again in your word. And to get to be sped, fed spiritually. We pray that, um, that we would continue in this Bible conference to have our minds open to hear as, as these different speakers have been given the gift uh, to, of understanding in your word to break it for us so that we can be fed and be nourished. And then we can grow as your children and be pleasing to you. We ask now also as we're about to go separate ways for lunch that you would bless the food that we partake of and that we would be able to come back again at 2 o'clock and continue to fellowship together in your word. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.